You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Go ahead and grab it and let's go uh, to Hebrews chapter 10. We're also going to look at Acts chapter 2, but we're going to start in Hebrews 10 this morning. And uh, while you're turning there, let me just remind you, this is our second week in a sermon series that we have titled Renewal, which corresponds to our membership renewal process. So as many of you know, if you've been around fellowship, we begin each new year as a church by taking some time just to stop and reflect on what does it mean to be the church? Specifically, what does it mean to be this church in this city in this season of life? And so one way we do that is as members, we, at the beginning of each year, we take a moment to renew our membership. And if you think about it, um, the, the new year is always a natural rhythm, a time to just pause and do self-reflection and renewal. And we see it as a biblical and healthy practice to do that with your spiritual life. Just to say, where am I at in this journey of following Jesus? Where is he calling me? Um, and just to take some time to renew your commitment to him and to his body. And so uh, we do that every year. And there are four key realities that we're committed to as a church that we believe God's calling us to in order to be the church he's calling us to be. And they are gather, go, grow, and give. So um, we're doing that those one a week in the month of January. So last week, Jared talked about what, it, what does it mean to renew our commitment to grow up into Christ. And this morning, I'm going to talk about what does it mean to be a church or a people who's committed to gather. And so uh, with that in mind, look with me at Hebrews chapter 10. We'll start in verse 24, and then uh, we'll flip over to Acts chapter 2 quickly. So um, Hebrews 10, <coughs> excuse me, verse 24, the author says this. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, so the author, he said, or I guess it could be she said. Who knows? could have been a woman, right? Um, who, who wrote Hebrews? We don't know, but here's what he says. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food and, uh, with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together one more time. Father, thank you so much for your word that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And thank you that um, you have given us your word. Thank you that you've given us a self-disclosure. Thank you that whenever we put our fingers in our ears and said that we didn't want to listen to you, you did not stop speaking and you did not stop pursuing us and you did not stop uh, calling us into relationship with yourself. And so thank you for... Um, you taking the initiative in this relationship. And I just am mindful that you brought all of us into this room this morning not to be entertained, not to, uh, to do anything like that, but really your agenda is that we would hear from you and we would hear your gospel. So I pray you'd open our hearts and our ears and our eyes to see Jesus, 
uh, as beautiful and glorious and all-satisfying as he is. And I pray that you'd awaken repentance and faith, that you would convict and comfort and do all of the work that your spirit uh, would like to do. Just have your, your will and your way with us. And, um, and certainly get me out of the way. And so I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, this past week um, officially marked the end of Christmas break, which means that uh, after being out of school for two and a half weeks, my oldest daughter, Lucy, went back to school on Monday. And I don't know if this was any of your experience for the other parents or if we're just lousy parents, uh, but for us, the transition from break back to school did not go as smoothly as I would have liked. And I realized quickly on Monday morning that we were so out of the habit of doing this school routine, getting ready for school thing, that we completely had forgotten how to function. And all of our normal rhythms and routines were thrown off by the Christmas break. And in their place, we developed some poor habits, like letting Lucy stay up really late at night and play the Wii that Garrett Stovall gave us, um, and then letting her sleep in really late in the morning. And so all of that would explain why on Monday morning it took me every bit of 20 minutes to get the kid out of bed. Um, I, liked, I tried everything. I tried threatening. I mean, nothing worked. I, I, I literally um, put my hand in her water cup and like flicked water in her face because I'm an awesome dad. And, um, and that didn't work. And so I was like, what are we going to do? Couldn't get her out of bed. And then by the time I got her out of bed, she was a total zombie. And I had to physically dress her myself. No joke. Every article of clothing, I'm like fighting with her long, lanky legs and trying to get her pants on. And, and then after I finally get her dressed, um, we realized we can't find her lunchbox or her folder which are things that she takes with her every day. Um, and so, like, we're just, like, way falling apart, like, out of, out of rhythm, you know. And um, by the time we find her lunchbox 30 minutes later, we never found her folder, by the way. Um, we are running late, and we get to school, and we make it there just in time before she gets a tardy. And I'm thinking, Phew, survive that. Um, and then that's the moment I realized that we totally forgot to feed her breakfast. Um, and so... Um, <laughs> 2018 is just getting started, and we're in the running for Parents of the Year. And uh, thankfully, though, as the week progressed and as we, you know, after a few days of practice, we began to break some of the poor habits that we had developed over Christmas break, and we got back into our normal habits and normal rhythms that help us survive as a family. And um, the reason I share that story with you, what I want you to pick up from, from that story, is a reality we've talked about a lot as a church, but it bears repeating. And it's this reality that... Um, as human beings, every single one of us is being shaped and formed literally by the habits that we live into. The things you do, do something to you. So um, the, your routines, your practices, your rhythms, your habits literally get into you through your limbic system, this thing in your brain. They shape your desires. They shape you from the core, from the inside out, into a very particular kind of person. For example, like Lucy, if you're in the habit of staying up really late, then you're probably not being shaped and formed into a morning person, right? You're probably not the kind of person who just loves waking up early and seizing the day. And some of you are thinking, like, those people actually exist? And the point is, the things you do, do something to you. And whether it's into the image of Jesus or into the image of something else, all of us in this room right now are being shaped by the kind of habits that we live into. And here's the deal. Because that's empirically true for every human being, there are certain habits and rhythms that God calls us to that are absolutely essential for us to survive spiritually in a fallen world. 
Um, you cannot function without these. You cannot survive, much less thrive, in a culture that wants to destroy your spiritual life. And so um, what I want us to see this morning in this passage is one of, it's, it's one of, it's an important one, one of the most essential life-shaping habits that God has called every Christian to embrace is the habit or the rhythm of gathering together regularly as a church. And so according to Scripture, if we're going to survive spiritually in a fallen world, and if we're going to be the church that God has called us to be, it's absolutely imperative that we make a habit out of gathering together regularly as a church. And I don't want you to take my word for it. I want us to take God's word for it. So look back at Hebrews chapter 10 and just listen carefully to verses 24 and 25. Um, The author says this, uh, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So with your eyes on that passage, notice he just exhorts us. Listen, don't neglect meeting together. You see that? Don't stop gathering as a church as some, he says, are in the habit of doing. And so here's what he's talking about. Here's what you've got going on in the context of Hebrews. You have some in the community who profess to be Christians and they've gotten out of the habit of gathering when the church gathers. And in this case, the main reason why they've stopped gathering is because they're facing deadly persecution for following Jesus, okay? And in that world, one of the best ways for you to get picked off for following Jesus is when people see you gathering with other Christians when you gather as a church. It immediately puts this big target on your back. And so here's, here's the situation he's addressing in this, in this passage. Um, people are saying, you know what? Rather than lose my life over this, I'll just sleep in. Like, I'm just not going to risk it. Rather than uh, put this target on my back and gather with my missional community, like, I know they're going to meet at 5 o'clock tonight, they're going to discuss the gospel, and they're going to break bread together at Matt Wesley's house. Uh, But instead of doing that, um, instead of putting that target on my back, I think I'll just sleep in, or I'll download a Matt Chandler podcast, or I'll watch some TBN, and I'll just do my church thing by myself. And... What is mind-blowing to me, mind-blowing, is that the author of Hebrews says that the church's commitment to gathering together is so crucial to your spiritual life, it's worth losing your physical life over. He knows what they're going through, guys, and he doesn't say, you know what, you're right, man, like, don't, don't do it. Stay in your house, hit the snooze button, like, I get, it's, it's too dangerous out there, it's a, it's a, don't, I, I get it. No. Look, what he says is, he says, I know you guys, he knows the danger they're facing. And he says, hey, even if it means you get murdered because somebody finds out that you're a Christ follower, don't stop meeting together as disciples of Jesus. He's saying this this is an essential habit to your spiritual life. You cannot survive without this. And that's why... Throughout the New Testament, you see that the church is a people who are committed to gathering together. We read this in Acts chapter 2, verse 46. Maybe we can put it back on the screen. You see that they were committed to gathering together in the temple in a large setting just like this. And by the way, we see in Acts chapter 20, they did that on Sunday. They did that the first day of the week. That's biblical. They did just like we do. They did that the first day of the week. And then you see in Acts 2, 46, they would gather together in homes 
in smaller settings throughout the week, like missional communities. They were devoted to gathering. They made this a priority. They, guys, they risked their life for it. Here's what Ray Ortland says. I love what he says about this. He says, when the early believers converted to Christ, it never occurred to them to fit him into the margins of their busy lives. They redefined themselves around a new and movable center. He was not an optional weekend activity along with the kids' soccer practices. They put him and his church and his cause first in their hearts, first in their schedules, first in their budgets, first in their reputations, first in their very lives. As we see in Acts 2, they devoted themselves. This is unmistakable evidence that the Holy Spirit was being poured out. Listen, to be a disciple of Jesus is to be in this regular habit of gathering together with other disciples of Jesus, both in a large setting like this and in a small setting in homes, just like missional communities. And the question I want us to wrestle with this morning is why is this so crucial? Why does the church gather? And that's an important question because perhaps if you're anything like me, you grew up in the pews every single Sunday and you never stopped you know, and thought to ask, what are we doing here? And for many in our culture, if they're honest, they would answer that question by saying, well, we're here to be entertained. The, the, the gathering has been relegated to a weekly event, and we come here as spectators expecting to get lights and sound and an awesome band and a dynamic speaker, and we, we want to be wowed and impressed. And for many others in our culture, we would say, if we're honest, well, we're, we're here to check a religious box. That's what we're doing here every week. We're here to check this box to earn God's favor so that he will still love me, so that I can live a good life and go to heaven when I die. And then increasingly in our culture, you find this response where people would say, well, it doesn't matter whether you're here or not. Quite frankly, the gathering is just unnecessary in a world of podcasts or whatever, and I can, I can have Jesus without the church. And guys, what I want to put forth and have us wrestle with this morning is, is the reality that all of those responses are not only unbiblical, but they're ultimately devastating to your soul. And I want us to, to, to look into the scriptures and see why does God call the church to gather? Why is this imperative? Because he commands it. And to do that, I want us to look back at Acts chapter 2, and we're going to talk about four reasons. All right, Four reasons why the early church and today's church should gather. And these are four things the early church would do when they gathered. And by the way, um, we're going to spend most of our time on the first two. All right, So four reasons why... We gather as a church. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42 with me. And the first thing you see in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2 is that when the early church gathered, they did it. The reason they did it was to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. And right away, I would circle the word devoted. Because, as we've already said, whatever we are most devoted to will shape and direct our lives. Okay, whatever you are most devoted to is the lens through which you will see the entire world. So that means if you're most devoted to your work, if you're most devoted to your image, if you're most devoted to being a mom, that's what's going to shape and direct how you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you treat other people. The things that we give ourselves to, the habits we live into, the things we're devoted to is ultimately going to drive us and define us. And what you see in Acts chapter 2 is that in the early church, First and foremost, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. You see that? They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, which is to say they were devoted to the Bible. They were devoted to the Word of God, which Hebrews chapter 4 says is sharper. It's living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. So 
come together. The reason why they come together on a regular basis in large settings and in small settings is because they come together to have their ears and their hearts constantly pierced by what God says in his word. They were devoted to that. You want to know why that's so crucial to your spiritual life? Because on your own, all week long, you listen to what everybody else says. I know I do. You listen to what the world says. You listen to what your culture says. You listen to what the news says. You listen to what Facebook says. You listen to what unhealthy relationships say. You listen to what your own deceitful heart says. And God has given us the gathering as a way to interrupt our busy lives, as a way of intercepting these lies that we believe and relocating us in the truth of the gospel. And guys, that's what it means to say that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. To say that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching is a way to say that they were devoted to the Bible, which is a way of saying they were devoted to the gospel. Because the gospel is what the Bible is all about. Do you realize that? To be devoted to the Bible, these guys were coming together every week to be reminded of and reshaped by the gospel. Listen, I grew up in the church... And I didn't understand a lot of sermons I heard, and I never really understood how to read the Bible on my own until I became well into my adult years. Because to me, the Bible was this confusing book. And I get it. It's confusing. It's written uh, in different languages, in different genres, by different authors, in different cultures over you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. And so it's easy to look at the Bible and be like, how do I devote myself to this when I don't even know what's the point or where do I start or how does this thing hold together? And the reality we have to understand this morning is that the Bible... And all of its diversity is telling one unified story that's meant to lead you to Jesus. And so to be devoted to the Bible is to be devoted to the gospel. Because that's what the scriptures are all about. Take Jesus' word for it. Okay, Jesus says this in John chapter 5. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus says the Bible, guys, is all about me. And you devote yourself to the Bible because the Bible is pointing you to me. Or Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. In other words, he's saying, I'm the appointed goal, the fulfillment of the scriptures. The whole goal of the Bible is to point you to me, to my life, my death, my, my resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins, for your eternal life, for your reconciliation to God. The Bible exists to point you to me, Jesus says. The fact that I am the good news to all of life that you've been searching for. And so guess what? The early church had this habit that they built into their lives. They came together every week in large settings and in homes to be reminded of the gospel, to celebrate who God is and what he's done for them in Jesus, and to have their identity and their lives reoriented and shaped by that good news. I love this quote from Mike Cosper because he says it better than I can. He says, For the early church, the gathering wasn't an event designed to wow or impress you didn't attend as a spectator, but as a participant in your and the church's spiritual formation. In the gathering, we remember our identity as gospel-formed people, journeying together through the story that gave us our identity and being sent out to live gospel-shaped lives. This is why it's absolutely necessary that we gather as a church to rehearse and be reshaped by the gospel. And I think that is especially important in a culture like the religious South, because something we do with the gospel is we tend to believe it and then leave it and then go on and graduate to bigger and better things like getting busy and doing stuff for God. 
And we tend to look at the gospel as this thing that's strictly for unbelievers, right? That's a message that they need to hear. And so we, even if it's on an unconscious level, guys, we often think, I don't really need to hear the gospel because I'm already a Christian. Listen to me very carefully. If you don't hear anything else I say this morning, I want you to hear this. You need the gospel. You need to hear the gospel just as much now as you needed to hear it the first day that you believed it. You might need to hear it more now than you needed to hear it ever. There's not a single moment, a single nanosecond of your day that you don't need to be reminded of the truth of who God is for you in Jesus. And I'll give you two reasons why, real quick, that you constantly need to be be reminded of the gospel. One we've already hinted at. One reason why you need to be reminded of the gospel is because on your own, in the daily grind, in the trenches of life, when you're all by yourself, you naturally drift away from it. Here's what, here's what the author of Hebrews says if you back up a few chapters in, in chapter 2. He says, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard. He's talking about the gospel. Lest we drift away from it. He's saying that crucial to your life is that you learn to pay very close attention to the gospel because on our own, all of us are gospel amnesiacs. We are quick to forget who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. We are gospel amnesiacs, which makes us identity amnesiacs. We very quickly forget who we are in Christ, what our true identity is, and then what it is that we are called to and how we are called to live. Guys, it happens to you all the time. I know for a fact it happens to me. Um, This past Wednesday, my wife comes down with the stomach bug, and it's bad, like it's real bad. And so I have to get Lucy to school by myself, and then I come home, and I, you know, I have to take the little ones with me, and then I come home, and I have to end up taking the day off and stay home with them and take care of them and take care of her while she's in bed. And I don't have time for that. Like, ain't nobody got time for that, right? And so, um, and she should know that, um, <laughs> how hard I work, and it's just unbelievable that she'd go off and get sick on me like that. Um, but I did, you know, did my duty, and so in sickness and in health, for better and for worse, I, I loved her, you know. And so uh, I stayed home and, and did all the cooking and cleaning and all that stuff. And, and so, yeah, and, but I get anxious about it, right? I start to get anxious because I've got things to do. I've, I've got a sermon to prepare. I'm supposed to lead a discussion that night in our missional community leader training, and I've got other projects that I'm working on. I've got texts and emails rolling in, people who need things from me, and and, and I can't get to it, and I start to get anxious. And then I start to believe this lie that, you know what, if I fail at this, if I, don't, if I don't get this sermon done and do a good job, and if I fail at these responsibilities I've been asked to carry, I'm not okay if I fail. I'm not safe. It's not okay. I cannot fail. And, and so slowly but surely, I start to drift into this web of lies that my value and my worth and my security is based on my performance. And what I do as a pastor and being a really, really good pastor. And I completely forgot the gospel. And you know what it did? It destroyed my joy. It, it robbed my soul of the joy that Jesus has purchased for me. And I was miserable for a few moments. Guys, it happens to you all the time. On our own in the daily grind, we drift from the gospel. That's why, that's why you, you can't do it alone. All day long in our culture, we are bombarded by these false messages of false redemption. This, this message of if only, right? You hear it all the time. If only I was 
rich, if only I was beautiful, if only I could be married, if only I had a better spouse, if only I could have a child or a better child, if only I could be young again, if only I had this one thing, then I would be saved, then I would be secure, then I would have the cure for my emptiness, I would be whole, I would be happy. And some of you, maybe many, maybe most of you, come into this room this morning believing and living out of that delusion. And God has given you the gathering as a way of shaking you awake with the gospel, stirring you awake, right? Hebrews 10, if you go back to Hebrews 10, says, come together so you can stir one another up. That's a fascinating word, stir one another up. It's the word that literally means somebody grabs you by the shoulders and they shake you awake. Just like I had to do Lucy on Monday morning, right? Why did I have to shake her awake? She was asleep. Why does the author of Hebrews say, you need somebody to grab you by, you need other people to grab you by the shoulders and shake you awake? Why does he say that to us? Because we fall asleep at the wheel, spiritually speaking. And we drift into spiritual apathy and we drift away from the gospel into a web of lies because we're gospel amnesiacs. And we cannot do this alone. Reason number two why you need the gathering and you need to constantly remember the gospel through the gathering is because the gospel is not only how you get into the Christian life, the gospel is how you grow up in the Christian life. Paul says in Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth and love to one another, we grow up into Christ. He says if you want to grow up into Jesus, we've got to put ourselves in situations where people can speak the truth and love to us. And by truth, he means the truth of who Jesus is for you, what he's done for you. He says, you, you need to constantly preach to yourself and have other people preaching to you the good news that Jesus is to all of life. It's the only way you're going to grow up. You, we, we, we've said this a lot. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe you haven't. But the gospel is not, not the ABCs of the Christian life, like the beginning stages and then you graduate on to bigger and better things. The gospel's the A to Z. It, you, you never graduate or get beyond hearing or needing the good news of who God is for you and Jesus. You only go deeper into it. And so that's why, by the way, every single week that we gather here on Sunday or we gather in our missional communities for discussions, we're always going to be, dis no matter what sermon series we're in, we're always going to be discussing the Bible and we're always going to be discussing the gospel. It's the only message, if you haven't figured it out by now, it's the only, we preach the same thing every week. Just from a different angle. We're, we're, we are one-trick ponies and proud of it, all right? <laughs> proud of it. Like, we, all we've got is Jesus Christ and him crucified. You don't need my opinions or Jared's or Luke's. or like, we've got nothing for you, dude, except Jesus and him crucified, which is everything that you need. And so the gospel's like this diamond, and we're just going to keep turning it and looking at it from different angles and reflecting on it from different angles. Look at, look at it from this angle. That's all we're going to do every week as long as we've got breath in our lungs. Because what you need more than anything else is to be reminded and reshaped and redefined constantly by the gospel. That's why we gather. That's why we gather. We gather together around the good news of who God is for us in Christ to celebrate and to remember. And we gather to fellowship. And we're committed to this. This is, this is why in your membership renewal form, uh, you know, we, we say like, hey, how, how often are you going to try to plan to be here? That's not because we're about legalism. That's because we're about the life that Jesus has for you. So that's why we're saying, we say, like, if you're not in a missional community, get in one. Because we're committed to gathering around the gospel, and we're committed to fellowshipping together. You see that in verse 42? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. And I would 
Underline that word fellowship. I love that word fellowship. Um, when we think about fellowship in our culture, we tend to think about it in terms of hanging out with people who are just like us and watching the Super Bowl or you know, having some chips and salsa or whatever. Uh, or if you grew up in the church like I did, you've probably heard of churches having a fellowship hall, right? A place where you go for potluck. And, um, and then after the potluck's over, the fellowship is usually over. Um, here's what you've got to understand. This word fellowship is actually much deeper than our concept of hanging out. So this is, this is the Greek word koinonia. I don't say that to sound smart. I say that because in this case it actually matters. Um, and so what koinonia means is it means that you are joined together by an unbreakable bond. It means you have deep trusting relationships with one another through a bond that is indestructible. And in this case, the one reality that joined the early church together is Jesus. And, and you have to understand this, guys, because in order for us to be the church God is calling us to be, we have to get this. Um, the, the reason we call ourselves Fellowship Paragould is because the fellowship that we have together, what unites us together, is not our preferences, it's not our programs, it's not our skin color, it's not our likes or our dislikes, it's not our age or our stage in life. What binds us together, the one common denominator that we share is the fact that we are all sinners saved by grace in need of Jesus. That's what unites us together. I had a conversation with a guy this week who said, he looked at me right in the face and he said, man, I'll never be a part of the church because it's all a bunch of hypocrites. And I looked at him and I felt like I could kind of, I had a relationship with him, so I felt like I could kind of do this and kind of poke at him a little bit. He said, I'll never, I'll never be part of a church because it's all full of hypocrites. And I said, wait a minute, are you not a hypocrite? I've never met one of you people. Like, this is amazing. You t- you're saying you're not a hypocrite? Like, you don't say you believe one thing and then live in a contradictory way? Or you've never, like, pretended to have your life all together around certain people? Like, that's amazing, dude. This is amazing to meet one of you in real, real life flesh and blood. And he laughs, and he's like, man, you know, like, no, that's not what I'm saying. And I, I'll say to him the same thing I'm going to say to us this morning. Um, to be a Christian or to be part of the church is not to be a part of this perfect group of people who have all of our stuff together. To be a Christian, to be a part of the church, is to be an imperfect group of people who stand in need of one perfect Savior, and his name is Jesus. And it's to, it's to admit that you are broken, you are messy, and you are sinful, and you stand in desperate need of God's grace. And congratulations, you all qualify. Like, you all can be a part of the church because you're all jacked up and need Jesus. So you all qualify. It's amazing. It's, it's Congratulations. All you have to do is admit that you're a sinner and you need the grace of Jesus. That is the fellowship that we have together. That's the fellowship we have together. And what you have to understand is that when you are saved into relationship with Jesus, you are saved into relationship with his body. And that means that in order to stay connected to Jesus, you have to stay connected to his body. Simply put, you can't follow Jesus without the church. You can't follow Jesus without the church. You can't have the head without the body. That's why this metaphor is so powerful. You can't decapitate the two. Or to use another metaphor from Ephesians 5, you can't have the, the husband without the bride. You know, if a guy came to me and said, Adam, I think that you are awesome. Like, I think you're amazing. I want to hang out with you. I want to be with you. I want to follow you. But your wife is a jerk. 
and I think that she's a nasty hypocrite, and I don't want anything to do with her. Do you think for one second that me and that guy are going to be on good terms? No, I'm not going to want anything to do with that dude because you don't get me without my wife. You can't have Jesus without the church. And when you are saved in a relationship with Jesus, you are saved in a relationship with his body. And it's a covenant for better or for worse. And a lot of times it's better and a lot of times it's worse. Because community is messy, right? It's messy. And it's difficult. And that's why we need each other. Like, look, community exists. It's God's way of reminding us that you can't be a lone ranger Christian because you're designed for relationships. You're created in the image of a relational God. You're designed for relationships. And God's given us the gift of the church to remind us that we're not alone and we need each other. That's why, going back to Hebrews 10, he says, come together to encourage one another because you need encouragement. Am I the only one who comes in here this morning that needs encouragement? I, I know it's at least true for me and my missional community, right, guys? We need encouragement. Because my group me done blow, blew up this week, all right? Um, and, and it's just, it's normal, right? Because we're broken and we're messy and we're hurting people. And so just this week in my missional community, we had, you know, we had people who got the flu. We had parents with kids in the hospital with doctors that couldn't give them any answers. We had people battling their own health issues. We had people in financial distress. We had people dealing with relational conflict and the fact that they had been hurt by others. And I know that's not true just for my missional community. I know it's true for all of us because that's life in a fallen world. And many of you come in here this, this morning and you've had a tough week. You're hurting. or You've come out of a tough year with a lot of heartache and a lot of disappointment and a lot of loss. And you know what suffering does to you? It assaults your soul with the temptation to be discouraged. And the way it does that is because nothing, nothing like pain and suffering communicates to you that you're all alone. You're alone. And God has given us the body of Christ and the gathering to remind you, you're not. God has given you a family created by the gospel, an eternal family, and you need one another for encouragement. And I know some of you are in this room saying, well, you know what, I've been around fellowship for a while, and I've tried the missional community thing, and I still don't have deep relationships. And if that's you, I'm so glad you're honest. And one way I would, you know, the pastors and I would love to shepherd you through that is just by reminding you that, hey, look, this fellowship thing that, that we're devoted to, authentic relationships take time and intentionality. And some of you are frustrated because you plugged into a missional community and you were there for one month or six months or eight months and it still doesn't feel like family and you're ready to bail. Or maybe you did bail. And I just want to encourage you with, with the fact that, th that those, maybe you have some unhealthy, unrealistic expectations. Because the reality is community takes time and it takes intentionality and you cannot microwave this. All you can do is keep showing up and be intentional and don't be passive and help create the kind of family experience that you long for. And this is a learn, we're all on a learning curve with this. And you have to realize, like I said, that it's messy and it's uncomfortable. Um, it, you know, it's especially messy when you gather in smaller settings like missional communities because you're gathering with sinners just like you and me. And what happens in missional communities is you sin against one another. There's going to be times where you're disappointed. There's going to be times where you're annoyed. There's going to be times where you get your feelings hurt. 
And it's messy and uncomfortable for you because there's times where you're going to see your sin in ways you've never seen it before and really, quite frankly, didn't care to see it. Because community is God's way of squeezing you like a sponge and all this stuff comes oozing out of your heart that was in there all along. And everybody else gets to see it. I know they've seen mine. I know my missional community has seen mine. And it's uncomfortable. But you know what? It's also beautiful. Because that's how you get truly known and fully loved, which is what your soul is longing for. It can't happen apart from community. In community, people get to see the best, uh, the, the worst of me, and then they get to love me like Jesus. And it's amazing because when that stuff comes out of my heart, I've got a missional community that reminds me, hey, here's the truth of the gospel. And, they get, I, and I get to experience God's love in deeper ways, God's mercy in deeper ways, and I get to experience the life I was made to experience with more freedom, more grace, more joy. But it's only possible if you're willing to take God at his word and step all the way into community and devote yourself to the fellowship that we have in Christ. So, a word of exhortation. If you're in this room and you're part of one of our 12, uh, 11, about to be 12, about to be 13 missional communities. We've got exciting news coming down the pike as far as that goes. Um, if you're part of one of our missional communities and you're like disenfranchised or frustrated and think about bailing, don't wait. Don't bail. Give yourself, give your missional community all the grace that God wants to give you and stay and, and, and fight for community. If you're in this room and you're not in a missional community, we want to encourage you to get in one. And you can do that by coming and talking to one of the pastors, fill out a Connect card, um, connect with us through our app. We want to help you get plugged into a missional community. We believe that's the only way to live the life God is calling us to experience. It's a habit we've got to build into our lives. Number three and number four, real quick, and then we're done. Um, Number three and number four reasons why the church gathers, and I'll cover these a little more quickly. We see in verse 42, they, they were gathered not only to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is to say they were devoted to the gospel, they were devoted to the fellowship they have in the gospel, and then we see that they were devoted to breaking bread together. Or as verse 46 says, that they were devoted to sharing meals in their homes, just like we do in missional communities. See, in this culture, they understood, unlike in a fast food culture, um, we've kind of lost sight of this, meals are sacred. Meals are sacred. You know, three times, at least three times a day, God has built in a rhythm where you have to stop and embrace your limitations. And remember that you're just human and you're, you are dependent upon the God who created you because you've got to eat or you, you won't survive. So meals are a time for us to stop and be reminded we need something outside of ourselves to sustain us physically which is a way of ultimately pointing us to Jesus, our bread of life, who sustains us not only physically but spiritually. And they understood that. So they come together to, again, remember the gospel by breaking bread together. They also understood something that we've lost in our culture, that meals are missional. You look back, by the way, if you want a great read for 2018, Tim Chester's A Meal with Jesus is one of the most influential books I've ever read. I know Jared's read it. It's one of the most influential books I've ever read. And so the number one activity Jesus did is he ate with people. And meals is a phenomenal way of getting people who are far from God around your table, not only feeding their bellies, but feeding their souls by embodying the gospel for them and speaking the gospel to them. And so the early church did this. They understood that meals are sacred, meals are missional, and then they also did this in the sense of communion. 
Jesus commanded us, take this bread and break it and take this cup and remember my body broken and my blood shed for you so that you don't have to live your life in guilt, fear, and shame, but you can live your life in the freedom of forgiveness that I have accomplished for you. And so that's why every week we come together and we break bread and we take this cup and we remember, we celebrate communion, we break bread together. Lastly, number four, the reason why this is a life-changing habit you have to build into your life is they came together, the early church came together, you see in verse 42, to devote themselves to prayer. And then I would add, because you see it in verse 47, and you see it in places like 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 and Philippians 2 and Ephesians 2 and Colossians 1 and all over the place, they were devoted to praise. They came together to devote themselves to prayer and to praise. And so the same should be true for us in our gatherings. Um, Prayer is not just a private matter. It's a public reality. That's why Jesus, when he taught us to pray, he didn't just say, pray my Father, but pray our Father. Because he assumed that we would be together corporately, hanging out with the Father together and worshiping him together. And then they devoted themselves to praise. And I love this line from Jeremy Begbie, one of my favorite lines. He says, I'll put it on the screen for you. He says, every time we come together and sing and praise God, we are hearing an echo from the future. How cool is that? an echo from the future, a preview of what it will be like when the countless millions of the redeemed are gathered into the presence of God to sing his praises forever. Guys, this is a preview of what, partially of what heaven will be like when all the peoples of the earth that God redeems through the blood of Christ are gathered together fully and finally into his presence to sing and praise him forever. And so we come together to praise God corporately as a way of reorienting us around our future hope. We do things like lift our hands. By the way, that may seem weird. You know the Bible commands you to do that? The Psalms command you to clap your hands, to lay on your face at times, to raise your hands. You want to know why? Because you need sometimes to engage your body physically so that your mind can catch up with what your heart's trying to tell you, that you are reaching for God. You live your life reaching for God, thirsty for God. And this is a way to to get on board with that and remember that. And a way of saying, here I am, Jesus. I'm going to surrender to you all over again. I need you just as much now as I did the day that I first cried out to you. So take me as I am. Come and meet me here in this place. My soul is reaching and crying out for you. That's why we lift our hands. And we come together every week to do that. So in summary, when the early church gathered, it was a habit they built into their lives, and they did it in large settings like this. They did it in small settings and homes like missional communities. They did it as sinners saved by grace. They did it devoted to the gospel, devoted to the fellowship, devoted to the communion and the breaking of bread. They did it devoted to prayer and praise. And every year we do membership renewal as a way of recommitting our lives to that vision. As a way of saying we cannot survive in a fallen world without this. If we're going to be the church God's calling us to be, if we're going to survive spiritually, we have to be in the habit of gathering together regularly. Listen, guys, it's not optional. It's not optional. It's, it's, not, it's absolutely necessary. You've got to schedule it. You've got to make it a priority, as Ray Ortland says. Um, when it competes with other things, like, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not, you can't be legalistic about it, but you've got to somehow make it a priority in your life and get on board with the fact that this matters or God wouldn't call us to it. And maybe some of you are in here this morning and you're starting to feel like, well, man, 
I'm not sure if I even know this Jesus. Um, and, or maybe you would say that you, you, you would call yourself a Christian, but you're realizing in this moment, my priorities are out of whack. Like I have put kids sports or what, I don't know, whatever it is. Like I'm just not, I'm, I'm, I'm a member of this church, but I'm not in a missional community. I haven't been in months. It's because I got my feelings hurt or I don't know where you're at. I don't know what the Spirit's saying to you, but maybe you're realizing this, mor- this morning, my priorities are out of whack. You know what's awesome about the God that we serve? The Bible tells us that the, the God we have is the kind of God who when he sees sinners like you and me repenting, and reorienting around what is true, he runs to them, and he embraces them, and he celebrates over them, and he throws a party, and he showers them with his love and his grace. And that's what we come here to ultimately remember every single week. That's why we celebrate communion. The the, the broken body of Jesus and his shed blood remind us that we are not saved in a relationship with, with Jesus and his body based on our performance based on having our priorities perfect, because nobody does, but based on the fact that Jesus performed perfectly in our place. He lived the life we failed to live. He died the death we deserved to die. And by turning away from our own self-agendas and our own self-salvation strategies and looking to Jesus as our only hope, we have eternal life in God. 